Mark chapter 1, pick me up in verse 29. And immediately, speaking of Jesus, he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately they told him about her. Now I love this. Now you, you got to remember, Simon, who is Peter, just quit his job. He was a fisherman. He came home. His wife says to him, how'd work go? He says, well, I was up all night, didn't catch anything. Then this man told me to cast my net on the other side. We caught so many fish, the boat started to sink and all this stuff. And um, he goes, I quit my job. And I can imagine the wife saying, to follow this guy? And Peter says, yeah. And I can imagine the wife saying, well, how much is he paying you? I don't know. He said, the birds of the heaven have nests, foxes have holes, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. I don't know if I'm getting paid. Well, what are the benefits? I don't know what the benefits are. She ain't happy. Well, now her mama gets sick and Peter sees his chance. Let me get peace in my household. Jesus, can you go over to my mother-in-law's house and can you heal her? Because Peter is thinking if Jesus can heal her, then it'll not only authenticate who Jesus is, but it will also authenticate the decision Simon Peter made to quit his job and follow Jesus. So I just want you to understand that. So it says in our text, verse 31, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him, underline or circle this word, all, all, all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And, they were, uh, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next town, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Some of you have been asking, uh, there are some guests who are asking about uh, how do you do giving here because we don't pass the baskets. Um, let me just remind you, uh, we've got those giving boxes in the back. Growing up in elementary school, we used to play a game, um, and some of you all might be familiar with it. Um, it was a game that we played called Musical Chairs. Anybody remember that game? Uh, the way musical chairs would, would simply work is you would, uh, you would call forth a set amount of people. It could have been four, five, six, seven, let's say it's seven people. And then you would set out not seven chairs, but you would set out one less chair, six chairs. So you had seven people, six chairs, and then the music would start. Now, the basic premise to musical chairs is this. You knew that the music was not going to last forever. You knew and you understand that at some given moment, at some point, the music was going to stop. 
And here's another reality. Not only did you know that the music was going to stop, but the other reality is you had no idea when it was going to stop. And so the reality that it was going to stop and the reality that you did not know when it was going to stop heightened the sense of focus and attention you now brought to those chairs. You would circle those chairs slowly. You would, you would, you would be methodical and intentional and because you were laboring under these two realities. Music won't last forever. It's going to end. I don't know when it's going to end. And when it ends... There was a mad dash scramble to get one of those chairs. That's a fitting me metaphor for time. All of us are birthed into this world, and like music in musical chairs, our time in this life will not last forever. The Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die. Hebrews 9:27. Reality one, we will die. Eat as much kale as you want. Sprinkle that little quinoa, whatever on there, as much as you want. Eat as healthy and organic all you want. Jog and work out and lift weights all you want. Steward God's temple well, but there's going to come a time when God will say, give me back my breath. Boom. Boom. And we shall behold him face to face. That just as when you go to a person's grave, Mark, you, you see the date of their birth and the date of their death. These two dates we have no control over. But what we do have control over is how we steward the dash. What this series is fundamentally about is stewarding the dash. We don't live forever. Newspapers are filled with obituaries of people who had made all of these plans and had all of these wonderful dreams and aspirations and God says, give me back my breath. In John chapter 17, it's the end of what theologians call the upper room discourse. The upper room discourse begins in John chapter 13 where Jesus takes on the form of a servant, takes off his towel, washes the feet of the disciples, and he teaches them in John chapters 13. And he says to them, by this will all men know that you're my disciples. John chapter 14, he talks about the Holy Spirit. He calls him the comforter. In fact, he continues that theme in John chapter 16. Then in John chapter 15, he says to them, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And then in John 17, Jesus steals away and he prays and he's reflecting on life. He's on the precipice of death. 33 years of age. When Jesus dies, he dies homeless, single, poor. By the world's eyes, that is an equation for loser. But in the economy of God, he was rich. 
The reason why he was rich is he says it in John chapter 17, verse 4. These are stunning, breathtaking words. Look at them with me on the screen. Jesus is looking through the rearview mirror, and he says these words, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Wow. Jesus is satisfied homeless, poor, unmarried, fulfilled. Why? Because he accomplished the right assignment. God says, my, my, my pastor tells this story all the time. He says, you know, when, when I was in college, I remember writing this paper, man, and uh, I burned the midnight oil, and I, I had spent all kinds of weeks studying and preparing, and I type it up. And, you know, you ever turned in a paper in college or grad school, whatever, you just kind of, boom, just kind of laid it down, and you just knew that was A work right there. So my pastor lays that thing down, and he goes, man, about a week or so later, I get it back, flip to the back page, and um, there's a big, fat, red letter F in circle, and, the, and the, the professor wrote next to it, Kenneth, incredible research, phenomenal study. I could tell you spent a lot of time on this. Wrong assignment. <laughs> next time, I would encourage you to read the syllabus before you turn in the assignment. How many people will stand in the presence of God and will hear God say of them, man, you busted it, and man, you did all this incredible stuff, and man, you got after it, but you didn't read the syllabus. How many people in the Bay Area I mean, I'm, I don't know the Bay Area. Surely there's got to be a Tesla plant around here somewhere. How many people here, by the world standards, acing it? By God's standard, you're failing. Here's the dichotomy. There's... Several kinds of people here. Let me just give you two. Someone's here today, man, and you, you got money? You live in the right zip code? Kids go to the right school? Empty. Others of you, you're living in an apartment, scraping by, barely making it fulfilled. How could Jesus say at 33, unmarried, homeless, broke, I'm fulfilled? Because he says in John 17, 4, everything you gave me to do, I did. <laughs> I mean, I want to say that. I want to say, God, everything you gave me to do, this is not, this is not about perfection. We blow it. I was just praying the other day for grace, for grace. 
I mean, again, I, I should not say this as pastor. I'm knocking, I'm knocking myself off the pedestal. I had to apologize to one of my sons before I got on a plane because he made me so mad. I just, a word flew out of my mouth. I feel awful. I looked at him in the eyes, will you forgive me? Just praying the other day, God, give me grace for the parenting fails that I make. This is not about perfection. We blow it. You will blow it. I will blow it. But I want to be able to say, God, I didn't bat a thousand, but I was about your syllabus. That's what I want. That's what I want for you. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, he exhorts us, make the most of the time. Make the most of the time. Make the most of the time. Some of you are here and you've got decades left. Others of you are here, you won't make it through 2016. Paul says make the most of it. Make the most of the dash. Time is the most precious commodity we have because unlike money, it cannot be grown. You can't add interest to it. Yesterday was May 14th, 2016 in the pantheon of world history. That was the only May 14th, 2016 there will ever be. Tomorrow will be May 16th, 2016. It's not promised. All we have is today, May 15th, 2016. Make the most. Don't presume. So when we talk about time, there's two extremes. Some of us in here, we are weighted towards laziness and sloth. We fritter away time. We don't make the most of it. I don't need to talk extensively about this. The Bible has a lot to say about it. Uh, in fact, I had one of, my, um, one of my kids, we were concerned about some slothfulness in him, so he did a nice little uh, five-page exegetical study on the word sloth in the book of Proverbs. Read it. Read 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, where Paul talks about idleness. He says, if a man doesn't work, doesn't eat. This is what the Bible gets at. On the other extreme is overwork, and, and my guess is that's many of us in this room. We're, we're, we're prone to overwork and and put our identity and our jobs and what we do. In fact, it was Tim Keller who pointed out that the irony, the great irony is uh, many of our last names originally, they were related to some aspect of worth. Smith, it's because you're a blacksmith or a silversmith or baker or whatever it may be. It's so easy. You talk to a person inside of 30 seconds, you just kind of say, well, what it is that, what, what do you do? And it's easy for us to put our identity in work. And then add to the fact that we live in one of the most expensive places in the world to live in. And, and we've got uh, homes now, dual income homes, where mama and daddy are going off to work. And, and, and you know, they're, they, they leave in the morning, they fight traffic, and they get to their jobs, and they work, 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 and they come home, they pick up kids and help out with homework, and work, 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 work. And it's so easy. You string enough of those days and weeks and months together. It is so easy to lose the connection you're to have with one another as husband and wife. 
so easy, even in singles, to lose times of enjoyment with friends and, and colleagues and because you're just work, 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 work. Not only that, you add the social media piece to it. Not only do we, do we have work, but we stay plugged in all the time. So we can't even enjoy dinner with one another in our off times because we're checking Facebook. And I just posted something there. I don't see how many comments I got on that. And I just blogged about this and I just tweeted that. And I just posted this picture on Instagram. And we stayed plugged in and plugged in and plugged in. And we don't know what it means to have meaningful, substantive conversations with one another. I got a group of friends when we go out to eat as couples we put our uh, cell phones in the middle of the table and the first person to pick it up and answer it pays for dinner. I'm not paying for babysitters to sit at a table with you and you check your cell phone the whole time. But we don't know how to unplug. And God calls us to unplug. He models it for us in the creation account where six days he labors, the seventh day God rested. And it wasn't because he was tired. He rested to enjoy. And he looks at creation and he says, very, very good. I'll talk some more about that next week, but... I've chosen my words carefully here. God is anti-overwork. He's not anti-being busy. This is important as we come to the Gospel of Mark. If there's one word I want you to write down in the Gospel of Mark, somewhere in the margins of your Bible or your notes app, I want you to write down the word immediately. It is the word, one of the words, that sums up the whole Gospel of Mark. 36 times in 35 verses, the word immediately is used. In fact, we see it in our text, and immediately. Mark is the shortest of all the Gospels, but it moves quickly as if you're walking down Madison Avenue in New York City. It's got a quick pace to it. When we come to Mark chapter 1, much of Mark chapter 1 is Jesus' first day of his public ministry. And as we just walk through Mark chapter 1, we, we see him being baptized and selecting his disciples. And, and later on, he's, he's, uh, he, he'll be teaching in this, um, in this house. And in the middle of teaching, the roof opens up and a paralytic is dropped in on him. And he deals with that. And then he goes to Peter's mother's, mother-in-law's house and he heals her. And while healing her, people hear he's in town. They knock on the door. And the text says they bring to him all who were oppressed and and all who were sick and he takes a moment to deal with them it is a quick paced kind of a gospel and what we see here is Jesus is busy in fact if I could just say it this way a little bit of tongue-in-cheek busy is not a four-letter word Kevin DeYoung says it this way it bears repeating will you look at it with me He says, the reason we are busy is because we are supposed to be busy. If you have creativity, ambition, and love, you will be busy. We are supposed to disciple the nations. We are supposed to work with our hands. We are supposed to love God with our minds. We are supposed to have babies and take care of them. It's not a sin to be busy. It's not wrong to be active. By the way, this book will bless you. It's from his book, Crazy Busy. A little short book. I read it on an airplane from New York to Dallas a couple of weeks ago, and it really blessed me. It's called Crazy Busy by Kevin DeYoung. So here we see the tension. Jesus is busy, but he's not overworked. 
He's busy, yet he's rested. He's busy, and watch this now. It's important that you see this because one of the problems with the evangelical church is that when we look at the Council of Chalcedon and this wonderful statement uh, called the hypostatic union, it says this of Jesus, that Jesus Christ was fully God, fully man, and one person without mixture. One of the problems with the evangelical church is we so elevate his deity that we diminish his humanity. Jesus was fully God and fully human, which means he got tired. We see him sleeping. He got hungry, so he eats. The shortest verse in the Bible. I would memorize it, have my whole class memorize it. Every vacation Bible school in the scripture memory contest. I would huddle them together, turn to John eleven thirty five. We're memorizing this one. Easy points. Jesus wept. What I didn't realize is this is a strong affirmation of his humanity. He had emotions. So here is Jesus in his humanity, busy, but not overworked. So, Pastor, how do we steward time in such a way that we get after it in such a way that we're about the assignments of God in our life, that I can say at the end of my life, everything you gave me to do, I did. But how could I do it in such a way that I am not burned out, that I'm not overworked. How can I do it that way? Let me give you four principles. The first one is found in verse 35. Here's Jesus, middle of a very busy season, over at Peter's mother-in-law's house. He's just, the whole town's been brought to him, all those who are demon-oppressed, healing, healing, casting out demons. And it says, verse 35, and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out. Now I want you to underline uh, words, phrases like rising very early. He departed, went out, desolate place. Here is the irony of the gospel of Mark. It is the gospel of the immediately, but at the same time, what you see Mark doing strewn throughout the gospel of of Mark is we see Mark emphasizing immediately, 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 he went out to a desolate place. Immediately, immediately, immediately elsewhere, he went out to a desolate place. Immediately, immediately, immediately elsewhere, he went out to a desolate place. Luke 5, 15 to 16 says it this way. Look at it with me. But now even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. He would withdraw to desolate places and pray. How do I be about God's business? I'm busy. How do I am about his assignment, his syllabus? I'm getting after it without being under the tyranny of the urgent. Answer number one. We must intentionally establish rhythms of rest. You've got to schedule them. You've got to schedule them. One of our great um, American Olympic runners is a guy by the name of Bernard Loggett. He's won seven Olympic gold medals. And Bernard Loggett is phenomenal at what he does. And, and he was once asked kind of what his training re- regime is. He goes, 11 months out of the year, I'm just, I'm busting it. I'm going hard after it. I'm running all these miles. I'm eating healthy. I'm living right. He goes, but one month out of the year, every single year, I don't run a single step. 
For a whole month, I coach my kids' soccer games. For a whole month, I pig out. I intentionally gain at least eight pounds that month. It is a month of me just resting. And what Bernard Loggett and Jesus teaches us is if the best need a break, so do we. So this is what Another great book, Dr. Richard Swenson wrote a wonderful book. He's a Christian medical doctor. I commend it to you. It's a simple book called Margin. And in this book called Margin, he talks about how margin is the space between our load and our limits. You have a capacity. You cannot, you are not God. You cannot exceed your capacity and expect to be in a place of emotional and physical and spiritual health and well-being. I'm trying to figure out, and we'll talk about it next week, I'm trying to figure out when in world history did we take the command to take a Sabbath and put an asterisk next to it? I don't even, I don't even want to see a show of hands. If I just ask the question, do you keep the command to take a weekly Sabbath, 24-hour break where you unplug and in your Sabbath you announce to the world, I am not my job. This is God commanding us to Sabbath. He says, I am commanding you, take a break. Rest. You are not God. Rest. This is what Jesus does. Secondly, how do I steward time well? I've got to establish rhythms of rest but secondly, I've, I've got to fight for my soul. I've got to fight for my soul. Again, verse 35, and rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. So here's what I want you to see. Jesus unplugs from the world. He unplugs from his schedule and he plugs into his heavenly father. It says that he withdraws and he withdraws in order to pray pray, to pray. I'm concerned, and I say this completely in love. I say it even of my own self. I was reminded of it just this week reading Pete Scazzaro's priceless book, uh, The Emotionally Healthy Leader. Pete Scazzaro puts his finger on something that I have felt, and that is the spiritual thinness the lack of depth that is so pervasive. And here I am, I'm not just talking about people out there. I'm talking about scripture quoting, Bible toting, church attending people. Where the well is not deep. Where at best they, they plagiarize other Christian leaders' tweets. Give these one-line zingers. There's the absence of thought. Meditation. They haven't wrestled deeply with things. By the way, you need to understand, it's the paradox of the information age. You might want to jot this down. What you need to understand about the internet is the internet is the friend of information, but the enemy of thought.
It is the friend of, inter- of information, but it is the enemy of thought. Where are the thoughtful believers? See, see, th- this is where Big Mama, Medea, Nana, they didn't have Lifeway. They, they, they couldn't go to Amazon and order the Beth Moore books. They didn't have BSF, but they had a prayer closet. They went in deep in that prayer closet and they called on Jesus and they walked with him and they talked with him along life's narrow way. They wrestled with it. They weren't as profound and proficient, maybe, as some of us are today, but there was a depth, substance. This is Jesus. God in the flesh. Paradox. If Jesus needs to get away to pray, what does that say about us? So thirdly, intentionally establish rhythms of rest, fight for your soul. But thirdly, lean into life-giving community. Lean into life-giving community. Here is Jesus in our text. He's at Peter's mother-in-law's house, he heals her, he's enjoying rich fellowship with his friends. Then the town comes to him, he deals with them, verse 35, rises early in the morning, just gets away, needs to be by himself. Now verse 36, we see something interesting, everybody's looking for him, Simon, that is Peter, he's looking for him, and those who are with him are searching for him. Now verse 37, they found him, they said, everyone's looking for you, we've been on this search, Jesus, where have you been? And here he is, finally found by some of his closest friends. It's interesting to me that the first thing Jesus does when he begins his public ministry is he chooses his 12 disciples. Now, now yes, he chooses these 12 disciples because he wants to establish and advance his church, and these are going to be the leaders that he's going to pour into and establish his kingdom agenda here on earth. This is exactly what he's going to do. But I also believe that Jesus in his humanity begins with these 12 individuals because he was looking to shape and form a personal community. These were going to be people that he's going to laugh with, enjoy good food with, take trips together. They would be in many boats together and walk through grain fields and, and really hang out and laugh and go to parties together and enjoy one another's company. If you know anything about the disciples, you understand that within this larger group of disciples, there was an inner group of Jesus' friends. His inner circle were Peter, James, and John. In Matthew chapter 17, it is these three men who Jesus takes with him at the high point of his ministry on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17. It is these three that see Jesus transfigured. And here he is with Elijah and Moses. And and they hear God say of him, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And Peter's taking all of this in, man, and he is just blown away by what he sees. But not only are they with him in the high points of his ministry, These three are with him in the low points. If I took you to Matthew chapter 26, as Jesus goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, the text says that he leaves the eight with them at the entrance, entrance, and he takes Peter, James, and John with him deeper into the garden. It's there that the text says that he began to be deeply disturbed. And he pours out his heart and he prays to God, God, if there be any way possible, would you remove this cup from me? There's a level of vulnerability that Jesus doesn't show the other eight. He only exposes himself to that level of vulnerability to his inner circle. 
So that these three are with Jesus on the mountaintop and they're with him at the lowest points in his life as well. Can I ask you a question? Who's your Peter, James, and John? I'm not asking you to give me the contacts of individuals on your cell phone. Who's with you in the mountaintops and in the valleys? One of the tricks of the enemy, Gilbert Balzekian tells us that our deepest longing is community and our deepest frustration is community. It is the trick of the enemy who wants to whisper in your ear, I don't need people. I can go it alone. I can navigate life by myself. One of the morbid things I love to do with my kids is to watch lions hunt on the Discovery Channel. Love it. If you've ever seen how lions hunt, they never just attack a whole flock of wildebeest. They always look for that one who's strayed away from the pack. Or they attack in such a way as to get someone away from the pack. Lions hunt on the premise of isolation. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter says, Beware of your enemy the devil who goes about as a roaring lion. And that is why Abundant Life. Our family is so excited to get here and to be a part of a growth group and to do life with people. We are so excited to be able to open up our home and to walk with individuals. It is needed When God creates man, one day Adam is going home at the end of his job and God peers over the balcony of heaven and he sees mama giraffe going home with daddy giraffe and mama elephant going home with daddy elephant. And then he goes sees Adam just going home by himself and God says these words, it's not good for man to be alone. So he creates a community for Adam. When God sets up the nation of Israel, he organizes it in such a way that it is conducive to community. He organizes it in 12 tribes, and each tribe has a, has a network of clans. These are, these are clusters of community. In fact, to this community, in Psalm 133, the psalmist says how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Then we see Jesus. First thing he does is he picks a community. And then this church, thing called the church, gets established. And if you understand the New Testament, there's a phrase that keeps coming up over and over and over again in the New Testament. It is the phrase one another. Love one another. Serve one another. uh, Pray for one another. Encourage one another. Stir up one another to faith and good deeds. You and I were not created to be isolated islands. Go ahead and put this picture up. In just a few weeks, I'm going to go to Orlando, Florida for an annual routine. And these are men from all over the country. We've been doing life together for over 20 years, almost a quarter of a century. These are my homies. My boys. We're going to hang out in Orlando, man, and we're just going to have a good time, play some golf, have a lot of laughter. It's fun stuff going to be happening, but we're also going to press into each other's lives and annoy one another. We ask questions like, how are you stewarding money? How are you treating your wife? This one guy on the end here, 
We pray together every Sunday morning at 6.30 a.m. He's a pastor and I'm a pastor. We prayed for an hour together this morning. We prayed for you. I prayed for his church. And one guy with a scarf around his neck, we call him the governor. Again, I'm just knocking myself off the pedestal here. I'm a preacher, but I'm a man. I was working out the other day in New York, and man, this, um, this girl there at the gym was getting a little flirtatious, and Holy Spirit says, pick up the phone and call him right away. I called him right away. There's a level of information I can share with him. Let me just tell you, I don't know how your marriage works. I can't tell my wife who I struggle with. But what I've learned about myself is I need to tell somebody. Now, if you can't handle my humanity, if you can't handle my humanity, this ain't the church for you. I am not perfect. I ain't Jesus. I have struggles. And if I don't have someone to walk with me in a very real and practical way, and they get on my nerves, he texted me for like 16 consecutive days about this person. I said, bro, I'm good. That's what we need. You and I are not God. We need people. We need to open up. Let's go home on this one. Jesus intentionally established rhythms of rest. He fought for his soul. He leaned into life-giving community. But I love this last one. Look at verse 32. That evening, at sundown, they brought to him, then I had you underline this word, all, 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 all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed, verse 34, many. You missed that. Read it again. That evening, verse 32, at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed. Verse 34, and he healed many. You missed that. Verse 32, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all, verse 34, and he healed many. Which means he didn't heal everybody. Verse 36, Simon and those who were with him searched for him. I love this. this. is comical. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. Jesus says, cool, let's go <laughs> to the next town. Here's what I want you to see. Here's what Jesus models for us. And I believe this is going to bless somebody here. They bring to Jesus all who are sick, all who are oppressed. He heals many, which means Jesus told some people no. blows my mind. Jesus, you have the ability to cast out every demon and you mean to tell me someone comes to you demon oppressed and you say, sorry, my healing hours are closed. What? Here's the lesson. I want you to get this in your spirit. Jesus models for us. Opportunities 
are not obligations. Opportunities are not obligations. Jesus says, I reserve the right to not heal everybody. I reserve the right to not fix everything. I reserve the right to not deal with everything. Opportunities are not obligations. In an email, text message, instant access world, we need to understand, I don't have to answer every email. I ain't got to return every text. I ain't got to fix everything. Now, some of you, you're having a real hard time with this because you have what I call a, a Messiah complex. You think God's called you to be Jesus to everybody in your life. You have codependent tendencies. You're a middle-aged parent constantly rescuing your kids. They get into financial trouble, you pay off their credit card, they're 30-something years old, but you continue to fix and to rescue and to fix and to rescue, and here's what you're starting to figure out. It ain't getting better. You need to be able to say what John said. <laughs> Look at it with me on the screen. I love this. I want to set you free today. And this is a testimony of John. It's John the Baptist. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Say that with me. Hand over your heart. I am not the Christ. No, no, no. Say it like you mean it. I am not the Christ. I want to I help some of y'all. Some of y'all got this people-pleasing thing in you, and you, you so want to, you hate when people are sideways with you. You hate to let people down, and so people ask you, and you keep adding to your plate, and adding to your plate, and adding to your plate, and adding to your plate. Watch it now, and it's, it's not even coming from a healthy place. You ain't helping people to be nice. You're helping people because you want them to like you. Or you're helping people because you think you are the fourth member of the Trinity. You can't change people. You can't fix people. You can't deliver people. You can't change yourself. You can't fix yourself. You can't deliver yourself. So say it with me. I am not the Christ. I need you to hear that from me as pastor as well. I mean, Elder Keith and Elder Carlton, Elder Arshel and Elder Rocky and Elder Sanji and Elder Ezekiel, they can just tell you. I remember a very um, uh, intense phone call in a good way back in December as we were trying to sort this thing out. And I'm, I remember doing a Skype call in my office there in, in New York. I, I said, let me just put something on the table. This will probably kill any possibility of me coming to abundant life. I am a father with three kids, 15, 13, and 11. I am not omnicompetent. I am not omniscient. I am not all capable. I'm not going to come and I'm not going to do a whole bunch of evening meetings because Lord willing, Lord willing, Lord willing, in seven years, I'm an empty nester. I need to be at my kids' ball games. 
I need to be doing dinners with my family. I am not going to be so committed to this church that it comes at the expense of my own family. So that's, that's, I, I just, I just need to, t- I remember one night when I was pastoring church in, in Memphis, you know, 11 o'clock at night, this person calls my house and, oh, pastor, man, my, my, my marriage is on the rocks. I mean, he's crying, he's bawling his eyes out. And he's like, man, you know, we're about to file for divorce. I need you to come to my house right now. I said, right now? I said, right now. I said, well, how long has this been going on? He says, this has been like two or three years in the making. I says, it can wait eight hours. I'm done. Listen, I travel a lot on airlines and the basic fundamental principle of airline travel is airline travel really functions on this basic thought. We just move people from one point to another rapidly as quickly as possible. And what the airlines understand is we don't just move people, we also move their baggage. But the airlines also understand that while we're powerful, we're not all powerful. And because we're not all powerful, we have to put a limit to the amount of people's baggage we take. You only get two carry-ons. If your suitcase is too heavy, we charging you out the wazoo. Why? Because they understand if we took everybody's baggage we'll never get off the ground and fly at the altitude we're meant to fly at. Some of you all aren't flying at the altitude God wants you to fly at because you are carrying too much of other people's baggage and stuff. Yes, help people. Yes, walk with people. Yes, serve people. Yes, love on people. Yes, pray for people. But you've got to also guard your heart. You are not the Christ. I am not the Christ. But here's the good news of the gospel. Because of sin, we had worked ourselves into a mess. Romans chapter 5 says sin entered the world through one man and infected everybody. That because of Adam's sin, all of us were born into this world, into sin. In fact, David would say in Psalm 51, Behold, I was born in sin, and iniquity did my mother conceive me. I was born a sinner, and because of that, I was born into deficit, headed down a one-way street, destined to hell, with no hope in this world. But Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says that God demonstrated his love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that God loved us so much, he says, I'm going to take on all your baggage and I won't put a limit on it. I'm going to send my son to earth and he's going to live the life you never could have lived. You couldn't live a perfect life. You can't live a perfect day. But he will live a perfect life and he will die the death you should have died. And though you are not the Christ, we do know of a Christ. I want you to hear me as we prepare to transition into this time of an altar call. If you want to make the most of time, you got to put Jesus in the middle of it. That's what the syllabus says. There's one mediator between God and man. It's not you, it's not your friend, it's not Buddha, it's not Allah, it's not Muhammad. There's one mediator, his name is Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. 
that if you want to be able to say at the end of your life, everything, God, you assigned me to do, I did. If you want a life of fulfillment, a life that transcends zip codes and and schools and degrees, if you want a life rich with meaning and power and significance, it must begin and end with the Alpha and Omega, Jesus Christ.